A New Mexico mother was just charged with attempted first-degree murder for throwing her newborn infant in the garbage the day he was born. And a 27-week-old unborn baby in Cleveland received fetal surgery to remove a tumor, was placed back in the uterus, and delivered full term 10 weeks later. Guys, these are the stories that pro-choicers hate, (laughs) for they reveal the fantasies and lies that their entire position is built upon. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Hey guys, welcome to the show today. Thank you for tuning in. Uh, It is Monday today, and I'll be headed off to D.C. tomorrow. As I mentioned last week, I'll be uh, getting an Airbnb uh, because I don't want to be uh, forced to show my yellow star, uh, excuse me, my my papers, my vaccine passport. Um, But I decided recently that I have discovered that I actually um, identify as trans-vaccinated. And, you know, I've learned uh, that I can decouple my person from my biology. And so if Sally is actually Seth and Seth can become Sally and I can identify as a uterus holder, I've determined that I can also decouple my vaccination status from my biological realities as well. I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because based off of the secular progressives uh, tenet of Gnostic dualism, the body is not the real you. The real you is your soul and personal identification on how you feel you are on the inside. So if my uh, phallic has nothing to do with my actual person, uh, then certainly my vaccine alleged antibodies have nothing to do uh, with how I identify as uh, vaccinated immunity. Uh, And so I've just changed my identity and uh, identification as vaccinated on my vaccine passport, just as I changed my gender on my birth certificate and uh, driver's license. (laughs) Well, something tells me, unfortunately, that that pitch is not gonna work uh, when I try to get into a hotel in Muriel Bowser's Washington, D.C. Ironically, the Democrat Party, right, the left, uh, is uh, pushing segregation again. Isn't that interesting? The same party that believes that not all humans are persons in the womb believe that not all humans were persons in the 1850s um, is now banning African Americans more than any other racial class from entering restaurants. <laughs> Did you know this? <laughs> the, the, the highest percentage of unvaccinated uh, people ba- via racial classes is actually African Americans. Isn't that interesting? So I'm headed off to D.C., sorry for that funny aside, uh, uh, tomorrow. <clears throat> I have an Airbnb, so I don't have to deal with that. Probably have to just, I guess, just deliver food because I can't enter a uh, grocery store either. Um, we'll have some interviews. Um, I won't be attending the National Pro-Life Summit, formerly the Students for Life Conference, um, because you have to verbally state a religious exemption or show your papers to get into the hotel where the conference is being held. Um, but I'll be at the, at the march, and I'll be uh, having my camera guy with me, approaching some trolls, trying to see if anyone has the courage of their convictions to contend with me and debate this issue. So it should be fun. We'll give you more updates. Uh, we'll, we'll put up some updates on social media as well while I'm out there. Um, but I wanted to, <clears throat> to dive into some of these stories here um, that just came out this, this month. One was literally like a couple weeks ago, and one was the end of December. And these are the stories that pro-choicers hate. Right? These are the stories 
that, that sort of force reality to resurface itself, right? <laughs> it, it, it sort of jailbreaks reality from the ideological concentration camps that the left has put it into. And as you know, I always say on the show, the great conservative consolation is that reality always reasserts itself in the end. And when it does, it'll slap you in the face. And uh, if you're a secular progressive, you would do well to take the advice of Jesus and turn the other cheek. <laughs> and welcome reality home as a long-lost friend <clears throat> that you banned from your life. These stories sort of force those self-evident realities about life, about natural rights, namely the first natural right, the right to life, of the pre-born to come back to the surface. Uh, because these stories are irreconcilable, right? That's the word irreconcilable with the premises of progressivism and with the premises of the pro-abortion position. <clears throat> and so this first story is particularly ghoulish, disturbing, and disgusting, but we're going to ask the question why, and we're going to connect it to abortion. So this New Mexico mother um, is being charged with attempted first-degree murder for throwing her newborn infant into a dumpster um, in sort of a... Um, parking lot or, or sort of um, like behind a building area um, in New Mexico. Here's a picture of Alexis Avila, okay? Um, I believe she's only 18 or 19 years old. Um, and here is a photo that was captured with a security camera of her dumping her baby into the dumpster. Uh, we're not going to show the video, okay? Um, I just didn't want to, I, I, I just don't know if I can watch it again. Obviously, I've shown you abortion imagery on the show. It's not that I'm afraid to do it but we'll just show the picture for today. There's the baby inside of a trash bag being literally thrown into a dumpster by her mother who had given birth to her earlier that day. Uh, praise God that we had the security footage of this, right? So uh, a guy named Joe Imbriala is the owner of Rig Outfitters, <clears throat> and this is behind his building. And uh, he tells a story in, the, in sort of the news coverage of this that... that uh, he, he wasn't going to put security cameras up, but he, he decided he wanted to. Well, this baby is alive because of this security footage. Um, this happened on January 7th, okay? This was just a few weeks ago. Um, she is being charged with attempted first-degree murder charges or alternatively abuse of a child. The interim chief of police in Hobbs, New Mexico, his name is August Fons, and he told the local NBC affiliate, he said, I can't speak for everyone else here, but I never have in my entire career here in law enforcement never seen a situation like this or encountered a situation like this. You know, <clears throat> it's interesting when you hear people discuss the horror of infanticide, isn't it? It's, of course, the baby survived, but it wasn't, of course, it would have been infanticide. It was attempted infanticide. You hear people talk about the horror of these stories, how disturbed they are by it, and you can't help but wonder if there is equally disturbed by abortion, right? It's sort of a strange thing, isn't it? And this is what sort of Joseph De La Pena in his book um, on the history of abortion called the abortion distortion. There's, there's something about that topic and that word that sort of distorts what would have otherwise been clear moral thinking. But as long as it's abortion and that same child is located six inches away in a womb designed to hold them, <clears throat> there's not the same level of outrage and people are not as disturbed about abortion. But this story is so gnarly because the baby was born that day. She had given birth to the baby that morning and then threw him into a dumpster. <laughs> so apparently Alexis, this mother, only spent an hour in prison 
and was released with an ankle monitor until her trial. Of course, you know, if, if, if it was someone who had killed a four-year-old or something, murdered a four-year-old, that person would not be uh, given an ankle monitor and allowed to go home. The, the owner of the rig outfitters with the security camera footage that cap, captured it, Joe Imbriale, he told the NBC News affiliate, he said, I'm still flabbergasted even after all this has happened and the girl is walking free. That baby spent more time in the dumpster than this girl spent in jail. Um, right, right. Where is justice in America today? Um, as long as we tolerate the evil of abortion, we're, we're going to begin tolerating injustice elsewhere as well. Do you see what I mean? As long as it's reproductive justice to abort a million babies a year, then justice will deteriorate everywhere else as well, right? Does that make sense? I mean, that was, you know, the famous Martin Luther King Jr. line, even though <clears throat> the last couple of years we found out that MLK was not such a nice person. Um, I don't know if you know that. Go check on how he treated women in some audio files that got released after decades about him probably either raping or watching people rape women and laughing about it. Wasn't a great guy, okay? <laughs> but justice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. You know that line. Well, that's certainly true on the issue of abortion today. And now we have the injustice of this mom uh, literally spending an hour in jail and now awaiting her trial. This baby boy is lucky to be alive, uh, frankly. He was in the dumpster for a little over five hours. Shocking that he survived. Uh, and he is in stable condition now at Lubbock Hospital. So praise God for that. Everyone's outraged about this story. And you have to ask, why? Why are you outraged about this story? Because you know what? Mother Alexis could have gotten an abortion that morning right before she gave birth. Legally, it would have been her right, and it would have been reproductive health care, according to the secular progressives. And you would be forced to help fund that death through your tax dollars, and rather than being convicted, Mother Alexis would have been celebrated by the post-Christian secular progressive society, as exercising her bodily autonomy. And yet the local NBC affiliate covering the story asked this question. The, the man on the ground, right, in, in front of the trash can and the people covering the story said, why would a mother leave her child? Why did she feel that was her only choice? Interesting word selection there, choice. That's how NBC covered this. Why would a mother leave her child? And why did she feel that that was her only choice? And this gets to a very interesting conversation in question, doesn't it? You may remember in the hearings with Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health that the Supreme Court heard recently on whether to allow the Mississippi law to stand and in so doing overturn Roe versus Wade, Amy Coney Barrett focused her questioning on the reality of safe haven laws which allow you to surrender a baby within the first uh, few weeks to, for example, like a fire station, right, or a hospital, no questions asked. And so Amy Coney Barrett was saying, why are pro-life laws a burden to women if they can continue working while they're pregnant and then can safely surrender their baby and they do not have to be forced into motherhood? One of the arguments of pro-aborts is what? that pro-life laws force people to become mothers before they want to or are prepared to become mothers. Now, of course, we say, no, you're a mother from the moment your child comes into existence, the moment of conception, but Amy Coney Barrett's point 
stands to reason, which is that you can just surrender these babies. And so NBC asked the same question about Mother Alexis. Why did she feel she had to leave her child? Why did she feel it was her only choice? Right. So when they communicate this, what are they saying? They're saying it's better, it's better for moms to choose life and allow someone else to raise their baby than to choose death. But they're only applying that post-utero, right? They're only applying that to this baby boy because he was al already outside of the womb. And now they're saying, why does she feel it was her only choice? Of course, pro-lifers say that about the baby when he is in the womb as well. Why do you feel or believe abortion is your only choice when there are people who will help you and you can surrender your baby after birth if you don't want to raise that child? So these stories bring up very interesting questions about the pro-abortion <clears throat> position. Here's a great question. Why is throwing a baby in the dumpster the day before they're born horrific, or sorry, the day they're born, the day they're born horrific, but aborting a baby the day they're due is just reproductive health care, right? Now, remember, remember, abortion is legal through point of birth in this country. Oh, but Seth, no, some states have pro-life laws. Yes, they do, and they do save unborn children, and I'm grateful for those laws. However, Doe versus Bolton, as I've told you guys, if you're new to the show, listen up, this is important for you to know. Doe versus Bolton, the companion case with Roe versus Wade, right, which were both decided in 1973, said that a woman could not get an abortion in the third trimester unless, uh, okay, what, unless... Failure to get that third trimester abortion endangered the life or health of the mother. And they defined health so broadly you could drive a Mack truck through it, right? Later, they had to clarify what they meant by the term health, and the Supreme Court defined health to include anything per pertaining to the woman's um, physical, familial, mental, and age of the mother. Physical emotional and familial. Familial? Familial health? Family health? What does family health mean? Does it mean that if you're stressed out and you high, have high cortisone levels and <clears throat> you're fighting with your boyfriend or husband a lot and life is really difficult and you're stressed out a lot, does that justify a third trimester abortion under the definition of health? Yes, yes it does. And do you want to know who gets to decide if the mother's definition of health meets the legal requirement to get a third trimester abortion. Do you want to know who gets to make that determination? The abortionist. Oh, right. <laughs> the hitman degenerate who has a financial incentive to, ex to accept any definition of health because third trimester abortions are the most expensive ones and he gets a lot of blood money in return for killing that unborn child. Okay, so, so just to frame the question once again, why is throwing a baby in the dumpster the day they're born horrific and requires first-degree attempted murder charges, but aborting a, day, a baby the day before they're due or the day they're due is just reproductive health care protected in our laws and, and not only will allow a woman to walk and the abortionist to walk, but they'll actually be celebrated as exercising reproductive health care. I mean, the, again, these are the questions you're not supposed to ask, right? Now, again, maybe someone will tell you or me, right? But Seth, third trimester abortions almost never happen. You're, you're appealing to, like, abortions that almost never happened. And they only happen when the mother will die or her pregnancy, pregnancy won't be viable. Uh, no, that's actually wrong. That's actually wrong that third trimester abortions are only sought after when mom's about to die. According to the Guttmacher Institute, which is Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Branch, 
they report that about 1.3% of annual abortions in the U.S. occur after 20 weeks, which would be at least 12,000 post-viability babies are aborted every year, over 12,000 babies in a stage of development that they could have survived outside the womb with the help of doctors are aborted. And this Guttmacher article from 2013, on November 4th, it's called Who Seeks Abortions at or After 20 Weeks, okay, from Volume 45, Issue 4, okay, December 2013, you can go, go get it right now on Perspectives on Sexual and Reproductive Health, reported, this is Guttmacher, Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Branch, they say, data suggests that most women seeking later terminations are not doing so for reasons of fetal anomaly or life endangerment. Oh, oops, Planned Parenthood's research branch just admitted that third trimester abortions are vastly not sought after because mom's about to die or something's genetically wrong with baby, which would be wrong anyways, that's eugenics. They're saying it's sought after primarily just because. Just because, convenience, okay? So these do happen. They don't happen because mom's about to die. They happen for the same reasons that many uh, families choose abortion in the first and second trimester, and it's legal to do through point of birth for any reason or no reason at all. Why should Alexis be allowed to let someone else murder her baby the moment before she gives birth, right? And then have that man throw that baby in the trash, because that's what's going to happen. But she should not be allowed to do it herself right after he's born, <laughs> right? Again, think about that question. Ask, use this story, this hor horrible story. Praise God this baby's alive. To ask your pro-choice friends, why should this mother be allowed to let someone else murder her baby the moment before she gives birth and then throw him in the trash, but not be allowed to do it herself right after he's born and throw him in the trash? What's the difference? A six-inch journey through the birth canal. That's the only difference, right? A six-inch journey through the birth canal in childbirth. So as I'm fond of asking, what happens? Does the fetus fairy fly up and sprinkle magical personhood conferring fairy dust on the baby as it exits the birth canal? And so when that last foot leaves the birth canal, it's like, oh my gosh, it's a person now. Explain to me this magical birth canal that confers personhood such that throwing that baby hours after they're born into a trash is horrific, horrible, and the pro-choicers decry it and say she should be charged with attempted first-degree murder. But if she pays a hitman to do it hours before he's born on the day that he's due to be born and then throw the same baby in the trash at the same size, same level of development because it's the same freaking day and it's reproductive health care. Please explain this to me. Welcome to La La Land. We're through the looking glass now, folks, right? And this is why these stories bring reality back to the surface. So I wanted to cover that story. We're going to cover another one, but these are the stories that pro-choicers hate. They hate them. In fact, I'm going to use these at DC if I can find some pro-choicers to debate me, and I'm going to use these stories to ask those questions. And it is fun to watch cognitive dissonance happen in real time, isn't it? It's fun to watch people's mental gears begin to grind for the first time probably ever as they try to reconcile reality with their disgusting premises, which ultimately have led them to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy for any reason or no reason at all. Next, we're going to talk about this baby that had fetal surgery, was placed back in the uterus, and then delivered 10 weeks later. But first, I want to share an exciting announcement with you. Okay, this January, I've been telling you, January 29th, okay, January 29th, I'm hosting a huge pro-life conference for the church in California. It's not another conference for pro-life activists or students for life. Love them, great work, they're already engaged. 
this is for the church, to wake up the most powerful organism in the world for change. So we can take that saying, what happens in California doesn't stay in California, and finally apply that phrase to righteousness. It's true, what happens here, curriculum, politics, culturally, does not stay here, and we want to flip the script. And who better to do that than the Bride of Christ, the church, which worships an unborn child, God, the fetal deity, the prenatal God who entered human history in a womb. We're going to have Jack Hibbs. We're going to have Nick Vujicic. We're going to have Kirk Cameron. We're going to have Anthony Leventino, the former abortionist. We're going to have Melissa Odin, the abortion survivor, and many more. You're not going to want to miss it. Go to lovelifecalifornia.org. We do have virtual tickets. So if you want to tune in from anywhere in the world and watch these speakers, you can do so. You can use my promo code unaborted25, unaborted25, 25 for 25% off all ticket sales. The virtual tickets are, of course, cheaper than the in-person tickets. But if you want to come in person, anywhere from California, we want you there. Get a hotel, come down the night before on January 28th for the conference the next morning on January 29th to get educated, encouraged, and equipped to engage and go back fired up and with a game plan. We're going to tell you how the church can end abortion in their local communities, strike fear into the heart of the abortion industry, and counter Governor Newsom Leaney and the abortion industry's plan to turn this state into a sanctuary state for killing babies. LoveLifeCalifornia.org. Be there or be square. We'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to the show, guys. One more story here, okay? These are just, just brilliant. The last story was obviously horrific and tragic. Um, praise God the baby survived. This story is beautiful and wonderful, okay? But again, pro-choicers hate them both. Pro-choicers hate these stories because they can't reconcile them with their ideology and their worldview because they actually, <laughs> these stories actually force them to start, uh, what's that word? Um, oh yeah, thinking. <laughs> it forces them to start thinking. Okay, something they haven't done since before they arrived on campus at UC Berkeley or UC Davis or Yale or the list goes on and on and on or frankly, Westmont College. Um, this 27-week-old baby had fetal surgery, okay, so he had to be removed partially, placed back in the uterus and delivered 10 weeks later. This is bonkers story. Amazing what we can do medicinally um, today in America in 2022. By the way, a 27-week-old baby would mean that, that she, he or she could, he, this baby, could have survived outside the womb if delivered at this stage with pretty, pretty, pretty high survival rate. Okay, I've told you before, the youngest baby to have ever been born and survived is 21 weeks and six days, 21 weeks and four days, okay? 27 weeks, okay? So what happened here? Okay, this is the Cleveland Clinic, okay? A challenging fetal surgery to remove an intrapericardial teratoma that posed imminent lethal uh, risk to the nearly 27-week-old fetus. That's right, he was 26 weeks and six days, okay? 27-week-old fetus. Here's from the article, this is incredible. Uh, intrapericardial teratomas are rare cardiac primary tumors that can occur either pre or postnatally. Although typically benign, their rapid prenatal growth in confined space and close proximity to the fetal heart can cause cardiac tampon oh, wow, tamponade and cardiopulmonary distress. The operation in May, so this was May 2021, okay, to excise a three centimeter tumor affixed to the left side of the fetus's heart relieved severe cardiac compression and other physiologic problems and enabled the baby boy to be delivered near term 10 weeks later. After recovering from a lung infection, the infant was discharged. I mean, this is just crazy, right? Dr. Najam had successfully 
resected intrapericardial teratomas in neonates several times, but had never attempted the procedure in utero. Okay, A few non-Cleveland Clinic colleagues advised him not to operate, saying surgical mortality was almost certain. What a stupid thing to say as a doctor. Like, oh, the baby's going to die anyways from this tumor, so don't try to operate because the baby might die. Like, what, ass, what asses these people are? What an asinine thing to say. Just, just to show you exactly what, <laughs> how smart some of doctors are today, right? Um, so, anyways, but based on my postnatal surgery experience, Dr. Najem said, if Dr. Cass and Kalan, these other doctors, could safely give me access to the fetus's chest, I knew that I could take out the tumor because the technical part is feasible. I felt very confident. What you need is knowledge, teamwork, and courage, he said. There's nothing wrong with a calculated risk. Exactly. This is how we advance medicine, he said. And the other team members concurred and worked with him. So Dr. Najem is a great technical surgeon who has great outcomes but had not done fetal surgery before, Dr. Cass said. He put his trust in me and Dr. Kalan to take care of the mother and expose the baby to enable resection of the tumor. If we didn't do something, the fetus was going to die. Exactly, that was what I just said. The family understood the risks and benefits and felt it was the right decision to proceed, so I had confidence that we would do the best we could. I mean, this is just a beautiful story. Um, unreal um, what we can do today huh? when, when medicine is correctly practiced, right? And when doctors and surgeons don't crap on the Hippocratic Oath of do no harm. Uh, very beautiful story. Um, before we get into how this story uh, causes pro-choicers' heads to explode, I want to show you some photos from the surgery and of the family. Look at this baby's hand um, coming out of, of um, the mother's abdomen. Uh, I mean, that is incredible. Uh, but don't worry, that's not a human, right, guys? That's just a non-person blob of insensate tissue who can be legally killed at this same stage of development. Here's where they did surgery. Look, I mean, that baby, most of that baby's body is out of, is out of the uterus. That, that, I mean, <laughs> uh, yes, that is a human being, right? Um, and here's some photos with the baby, um, with uh, his family uh, when he was released. I mean, look at this beautiful little baby. His name is Baby Rylan, Baby Rylan. Look at that classic smile uh, at still such a young age. Uh, family taking a selfie there <laughs> with the baby smiling there. Um, pretty amazing, pretty amazing. Uh, praise God for, for these doctors, especially at a time, right, when we're hearing stories of doctors who, <laughs> who are being fired uh, for not taking an experimental jab that was developed or tested with the use of aborted cell lines um, or doctors that are turning away patients if they're vindictive and disgusting to people who need uh, surgery or other forms of treatment because they're not jabbed. Uh, it is nice to get a good story every once in a while. This story leads to many questions for the pro-choicer, though, doesn't it? Um, and I want to pose some of them to you here. Now, your mind, I'm sure, is already sort of reeling, um, asking similar questions. Here's a good one. If location and viability determines the baby's rights, Right? So that's what they say, right? right? As long as the baby's in the mother's body, that location, then it's her body, her choice. That's why they defend abortion through point of birth. It doesn't matter that the baby could survive outside the womb. It's still in the uterus, so it's still her bodily autonomy. And then secondly, viability. So pro-choice moderates, you guys know this, right? Pro-choice moderates who aren't as radical, um, they say, I am against abortion when the baby can survive outside the womb. I get this all the time. I got this all the time on college campuses. Right, pro-choicers who, who, who understand that how disgusting it is to say abortion through the point of birth. So they'll say, well, when the baby can survive outside the womb. 
when it no longer requires mom's body to survive outside the womb uh, because it's autonomous and it's independent. Well, it's not really independent because infants aren't independent, right? <laughs> no one truly is, uh, but that's what they say. Okay, so here's the question. If location and viability determine the baby's rights, then did baby Rylan receive constitutional personhood when he was removed from the uterus for surgery, right? Hey, you saw the pictures right now, right? If you watch on YouTube, <laughs> go subscribe to YouTube. Seth Gruber, a voice for the unborn. You saw the baby outside of the uterus, right? It wasn't in the location of mom's body anymore. So, oh, and it was at 27 weeks old, right? And uh, the courts kind of stupidly defined viability at about 24 weeks. So this baby was three weeks older when he got surgery, past the viability standpoint. So, so see, baby Ryland got personhood constitutional rights when he came outside of the womb. But then you see he was placed back into the uterus. So then he lost those personhood constitutional rights that he shortly gained when he was taken out of the uterus because it's her body, her choice, right? As long as it's in the uterus, the baby has no constitutional rights through point of birth. But then you see, this is crazy. Listen, I know, I know you don't get this because you're not woke, okay? So let wokey Seth explain it to you. You see, then he was born and delivered 10 weeks later, at which point he then regained those constitutional personhood rights that he shortly gained during surgery but lost when he was put back into the uterus. <laughs> Welcome to La La Land, right? Welcome to being a pro-choicer today. This story is beautiful and it's also hilarious when used to challenge the premises of pro-choice, the conclusions of choice. I mean, what else do you come away with? Because tell me, a pro-choicer you know, Find me a pro-choicer who would say that if a, if a mother went into labor, listen, early and the baby was delivered at 27 weeks, delivered, not, no longer in the uterus, okay, it's in the hospital now, doctor's holding the baby, that that mother should be given the legal and moral right to ask that doctor who has now delivered this preemie to chop the head off of that baby. Hey, reproductive health care, right? No one would say that, not even pro-choicers say that. But that's functionally what happened to baby Ryland. He was taken out of the uterus. So it would have been wrong to kill him, right? Do you follow me? But then it would have been okay to kill him and his mother could have requested it when he was put back into the uterus. We would have funded it with our tax dollars and the dad would have had no legal rights to contend for the life of baby Ryland who they just spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to save because he was back into the uterus. What the WTF, right? Sorry, family show. WTF. What do you do with that? that <laughs> I'm getting myself too worked up here. Right? Here's another good question. Why is baby Ryland's life worth so much in the womb such that hundreds of thousands of dollars are spent to perform corrective surgery to save his life while, while a baby at the same gestational age in the same hospital could be aborted at the same time that surgeons are working heroically to save baby Ryland's life? Right? This happens in some hospitals in America. There are babies whose lives are being um, heroically worked to save because they were delivered as preemies, while in the other wing of some hospitals, a baby at the same gestational age, okay, the same gestational age could be murdered in an abortion. And why? Because they were unwanted. Because they were unwanted. 
So apparently, your value as an actual human being is purely dependent on whether your parents want you or not. Actually, just your mom. Dad has no legal rights to protect his child in the womb in America today. So if your mother defines you as wanted, you have rights. So these parents spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to perform corrective surgery to save baby Ryland's life, right? But let's just assume for the sake of argumentation that this Cleveland hospital also provides surgical abortions, okay, for the sake of argument, which means you could have a 27-week-old, no, no, let's go 30, three weeks older than baby Ryland when he had surgery, a 30-week-old unborn child, have their body cut open as well, but not for corrective surgery, but for feticide, for homicide. And that would be entirely protected in our laws, championed and celebrated as a blessing of liberty by today's Democrat Party and funded by your tax dollars. What happens to a society that defines human beings as only valuable if they're wanted, right? It's a good question to ask. Let's carry some of those premises to their most horrific and logical conclusion. If baby Ryland can lose and gain personhood based off of location, and if he can gain dignity and value based off of wantedness, then should we be allowed to kill homeless people who may not be wanted by anyone else? It's a good question to ask. I would say no, because one's dignity is not based off of functions, right? It's not based off of utility, like what you can provide and perform, contribute to society. It's not based on that. It's based on endowment. That's what our founder said, right? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and that they're endowed. Endowed, what's that word mean? It means you've been given, ascribed, intrinsic dignity, value, and worth simply in virtue of being human by the creator of the universe whose image you bear. Right? We don't believe that human value is based off of functions or um, abilities. We believe it's based off of endowment simply because you're a human being. There are others who may be unwanted, right? Uh, but that certainly doesn't give us the right to kill them. But as long as that child is in the womb, then it becomes entirely permissible and acceptable. The danger with allowing these types of ideas to take root, to flourish, to promulgate, to bear their nasty fruit, is that ideas have consequences. And so those ideas will not remain constrained to the fetus, to the unborn baby. They will eventually sort of jump ship and target other human beings as well. People have a nasty, horrible tendency of, of sort of following ideas to their logical conclusions, right? Ideas have a sort of logical, logical consistency to them, right? Where if you accept one premise, you're more likely to accept the second premise. It kind of flows from the first premise, which means you're more likely to accept the third premise. It flows from the first two premises. Do, do you know what I mean? Uh, and that was why Dr. Mildred Jefferson so famously said, today it is the unborn child. Tomorrow it is likely to be the elderly or those who are incurably ill. Who knows but that a little later, it may be anyone who has political and moral views that do not fit into the new distorted order, right? In other words, 
As long as our government continues to deny the natural right to life to an entire class of human beings, our own rights will constantly be endangered by modern jurists and a ruling class whose jurisprudence is completely foreign to the Founding Fathers. Make no mistake, our Founding Fathers are rolling over in their graves in a seizure-like uh, reaction to everything that is happening now. But these stories, these stories center us. These stories take us back home, or at least they should. They force us to return to, to quote Hadley Arcus, to the things we once used to know, to those ancient self-evident truths that provide the philosophical, cultural, spiritual, and political foundation for a society to flourish upon. And when you abandon those undergirding principles that allow human flourishing, you endanger human equality for all human beings, don't you? Um, and that's really the danger with making peace with evil, with making peace with abortion, with making peace with allowing some human beings to be defined as unwanted non-persons and others to be defined as persons, is that tyranny and that evil will eventually come home for all of us, won't it? And Thomas Paine, who wrote Common Sense, okay, he beautifully depicted this. Thomas Paine argued for American independence, right, pre-1776. Uh, beautiful writing. I've been reading through Common Sense now. And he has a couple beautiful lines about what I just said, about sort of uh, allowing evil to flourish without doing anything about it because it's not targeting you and thinking that it won't eventually target you, <laughs> right? Uh, and he says, it matters not where you live or what rank of life you hold. The evil will reach you and the blood of his children will curse his cowardice who shrinks back at a time when a little might have saved the whole. He says, I love the man that can smile in trouble, that can gather strength from distress and grow brave by reflection. Tis the business of little minds to shrink, but he whose heart is firm and whose conscience approves his conduct will pursue his principles unto death. And you know who will pursue their principles unto death? The people who hold the right ideas, you and me. You know who won't pursue their principles unto death as much? Would be the, the selfish pro-choicers who seek abortion uh, for selfish reasons. For once their own lives are put on the line, they'll be less likely to die themselves for something that they were defending originally from selfish, for, for selfish reasons. And Thomas Paine later says that, that there are people who don't see the full extent of the evil um, which threatens them. Listen to this. They don't see the full extent of the evil which threatens them. They solace themselves with the hopes that the enemy, if he succeeds, will be merciful. Right? What's he saying? He's saying that there are, there are foolish people out there who see evil but not the full extent of it, and they comfort themselves with saying, uh, well, if the enemy, if he is successful with the evil that he's doing, um, he'll be merciful to me. He won't take his evil agenda all the way home to me. He'll just keep it focused on his narrow victim class. And, and I'll allow that because at least, at least I'm not being aborted. At least I'm not being targeted. <laughs> To which, what does Thomas Paine say to those people? He says, it is the madness of folly to expect mercy from those who have refused to do justice. Beautiful line, huh? It's almost like we should start reading the Founding Fathers again. It is the madness of folly to expect mercy from those who have refused to do justice. What's my point? Those who murder the preborn will not hesitate to target you. 
Those who murder the freeborn and defend infanticide under the euphemisms of healthcare, reproductive justice, and women's rights will not hesitate to damn anyone who is a heretic of the religion of secular progressivism and throw you out into utter darkness where there will also be weeping and gnashing of teeth in their alternative religion, <laughs> right? And that was that Martin Niemöller line, right? They came for the socialists, but I wasn't a socialist, so I didn't speak up, right? And then the trade unionists, then the Jews, and then they came for me and there was no one left to speak up for me. You see, Martin Niemöller made the same mistake that Thomas Paine warned against, which is seeing evil but not the full extent of it and solacing yourself with the reality that the enemy, should he succeed, will be merciful to you. No, they won't. No, they won't. And I think in the last two years, you have seen that, haven't you? You've seen tyranny on the rise, and everyone that's currently ruining our country and, and participating in medical apartheid, right, and, and, and expelling five-year-olds in L.A. County who don't have the jab, I could go on and on and on, right? Guess what? They're all pro-abortion. Have you ever thought about that? I'm sure that's a coincidence, right? I'm sure that's a coincidence that the people who will participate in tyranny outside the womb happen to support tyranny in the womb. I'm sure that has nothing to do with itself, right? Of course it does, right? Of course it does. It is the madness of folly to expect mercy from those who have refused to do justice. So what can you do? Well, <laughs> go ask a pro-choicer out to coffee and ask him these questions. <laughs> Read him these two stories, right? And then ask him the questions that I asked in this episode and try to get people to welcome reality back into their lives before it's too late. Which as our pastor and my pastor here at God Speak Calvary Chapel, Rob McCoy says, when people begin swimming up the streams of liberty, they'll eventually reach its source, God himself. You see, life and liberty are not man's ideas, they're God's ideas. And so if you can recognize that there is a natural right to life and liberty and that those rights come from the fact we're human beings, which means we have them from the moment we became human beings, a moment of conception, then eventually, eventually, if you're consistent and you respond to the wooing of the Holy Spirit, you'll find your yourself back at that spiritual fountainhead from where all these ideas actually come, God himself. But these ideas are just a small sliver of light in a very dark culture of death that remind us of the things that we used to know. And my hope and prayer is that it will wake up people to return to those first principles. Not only so that they can be a part of ending the greatest genocide in human history and not be judged by their grandchildren for participating in the greatest genocide in human history, but secondly, so that they can shore up and secure their own rights. For a government that denies the natural right to life to one class of human beings will eventually deny that right to another class of human beings. Thanks for joining the show today. Head on over to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really helps us reach more people. Join us at the Love Life California conference. You don't want to miss it. If you want to support the show, head on over to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. See some of our tiers and perks. One of them, you do a monthly fun uh, small group a chat a Google Hangout with me, and there's many others. We appreciate your support of this show. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh -huh.